Good morning, church. My name is Carol Krell. This morning's scripture reading is found in Romans chapter 3. If you'd like to follow along with today's scripture reading, now is the time to get out your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. I have been on a six-week preaching break, uh, taking a season for planning and thinking through future thoughts. Uh, I'm really excited to be back. I'm a little bit nervous, so I'll probably babble for a little bit longer here before I get into it. Um, I see some new faces that I have not interacted with before. Uh, I am married to my wife, Susie. Uh, This August, we celebrated uh, 16 years of marriage. We have four little kids, four girls, ages 10 through 4. So she is very busy. And today is September 1st, uh, which is uh, the day a year ago that my wife and I and the family drove onto the island, over to the Mercer downtown, into uh, an apartment that the Kassans had for us. And uh, Marshall Brown, I don't think is here today, uh, met us by the elevators in the back and helped us uh, move in our uh, two weeks worth of clothing and um, road trip food. We took five days to get here, and that was a year ago. Uh, So a special uh, day, September 1st, always will be. Uh, We are continuing today uh, in the book of Romans. And in particular, we are going to sort of hit the ground running with this passage that Carol read for us. Uh, Theologians like Martin Luther and others, they say that Romans is the purest gospel, that it is the single most important book in the whole Bible. And then they go further to say that this very passage that we're going to look at together today, Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 26, is the purest Romans. That these verses are the single most important set of verses in the entire Bible. In that, all of the verses in the whole Bible, point in some way to the ideas and the thoughts that are represented in these few verses. That these verses not only describe Christianity, but define it. It doesn't just tell us something about it. It tells us the essence of what it is. You take out the ideas that are here in this passage, you don't have a Christianity. You have no religion that sets, us up, sets, sets itself apart <clears throat> from all other religions. What we have here is the key distinction. It is what makes me what I am and what makes you what you are. That is a follower of Christ. If somebody says, what is the hope that you have? This is the hope that you have. If you don't have this, you don't have hope, one might argue. And the single word, the single word that all of this uh, overpromising now focuses on here is the word righteousness. And so that's the title of the sermon today. And uh, obviously there's a, a lot of very 
dense and um, key, key thoughts here, but uh, I want us to be able to zero in on this. And so for the sake of doing that, especially on a shorter uh, sort of uh, sermon time I have today because of communion, uh, I want us to just look at this word, righteousness. Another key phrase that we can spend probably a couple of weeks on is, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, all, what does all mean? What does sinned mean? What does fall mean? What, do mean? what does it mean that we fell? What is, what is the glory of God? What, what does glory mean? And when we say God, what are, who are we talking about? And so that verse itself can be broken down into many, many uh, different uh, studies. But the focus today is the word righteousness. There was a time in uh, sort of the culture maybe or in the way that I was thinking about Christianity when I used to have a problem with the word righteous or the word righteousness because it felt too religious. It, it seemed a little bit... Um, kind of holier than thou, you know, who do you think you are? Do you think you're, nobody, I don't think anybody uses this word anymore. When is the last time you used the word righteousness or righteous? And I would guess that if I asked each of you what this word means, most of you would get it wrong. I had to look it up. What does the word righteous mean? Does it just mean that you are right? Well, write about what? Write in what respect? And who cares if you think you're right? Who determines whether you're right or wrong? What does righteous mean? Uh, this, word, this word is very different from our thinking and nature. You know, it goes, it flies against the grain, I think, of what it means to be a fallen human being here on earth. And so I think there's universal relevance to this word because it's so contrary to how we think and how we, especially as Americans, as individualistic, entitled Americans, uh, tend to think. And so I think there's a very interesting study here, and there's some uh, very helpful practical application here. Uh, at the center of this word righteousness, what we're going to learn today is that the very meaning of this word, the way it is used here in Scripture, has to do with Jesus and not with us. Already, that to me is radical. Because if I see the word right or some derivative of the word right, I just think about me. I want to be right. I don't want you to be right. Unless you said, Peter, you have the winning numbers to the lot. I want you to be right then. But that's still about me. Right? But here, righteousness is not about me at all. In fact, the point of the whole sermon is that I have nothing to do with this at all. And it has everything to do with the work and person of Jesus Christ. I am totally released from having to relate to this word in any way. And that's how sort of Paul begins here in verse 21 when he says, but now. When he says, but now, he's saying, contrary to what you've thought, contrary to your nature, contrary to anything before Right this second. Right? But now, apart from the law. That's us. That's us laboring under the law. Trying to be good or good enough. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. So it begins really strong here. Okay? <clears throat> There's two points we want to look at. The first is God's righteousness. And the second is our righteousness. God's righteousness and our righteousness. Verse 21. 
But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God, whatever that is, it's now been manifested. It was hidden before. It was concealed. Now it is revealed. Not only revealed in a small way, but it's being publicly declared and it's verified. It's testified to by the Old Testament. Right, The law and the prophets. That's what Paul is referring to there when he says that. And what that means is that there was always this plan. Long before it was manifested, Jesus Christ was not an afterthought. God's saving plan wasn't God tapping his fingers going, what should I do? These people have surprised me. I didn't see that coming. What is plan B? We're going to get to this a little bit later in chapter 5. But we're going to see that there is no such thing as plan B. Because plan A was never messed up. In fact, we're going to learn that there is no plan A at all. Because when you have just one plan, you don't number it. You just have the plan. This is so important for me. I don't know, I don't know for you. But I mess up my life every single day. And by my life, at this life stage, I usually mean my kids' lives. It's so easy to traumatize them and feel like, oh, there it goes. There's no plan B for them. There's no plan A. And God's grace, apart from the law, meaning apart from our own competence, Apart from all of that whole mess we are stuck in and living in every moment of every day, God has a plan. And later on, he uses the word grace. By his grace, he is able to commit us to this plan. Because wherever a breaking of the law or sin abounds, his grace abounds all the more. In such a way that this plan that existed before you and I existed, that existed before Jesus came to earth, long before there was history being made, there was the plan of God in his mind. God saw everything. There's nothing to be known that he does not know. There is no surprise with God. God is never shocked and Oh my gosh, what do I do now? Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's what that means, that there was a plan. There was always a plan. There's only one plan. There's the plan. And his grace is sufficient to keep this plan going. Well, what about things that get messed up? Well, then there's the whole economy of redemption that Paul talks about later in verse 24. In all things, God is able to work for the good towards this plan. For who? For those who love him, who have been called according to this very plan or purpose. And so there we have it. The plan of God. But this plan is here in this passage called righteousness. That the righteousness of God, the plan, has been manifested. And this plan, this righteousness, has been always in the works. And now it's being witnessed to by the law and the prophets. Yeah, we saw that too. I know Jesus came after the law and the prophets, but we already saw it. Right? What does righteousness mean? At the center of this word are three letters, S-D-Q. It's pronounced sadiq in the Hebrew. And it's the root, it's the core root of this word. And here's a definition of that core word. Fulfillment of claims arising from a particular relationship. Let me say that again. Fulfillment, there's the keeping of the promise, of claims, that's a promise, arising from a particular relationship. 
That is to say, the word righteousness is not a status that an individual bears. It's not that somebody is not guilty, but they are righteous or they are innocent. But righteousness is always within the context of a relationship. And in our case, God's covenant relationship with us going all the way back to when God walked between the animals with Abraham. When God said to Abraham, whatever mistakes you make, I will pay the price of. Right? That's the first covenant that God made with Abraham. Going all the way back to that. So we have these promises and God wanting to fulfill these promises within the context of our relationship with God. That's what righteousness means. Here's an Old Testament usage of it. In the Old Testament days, there were these people who were called the righteous ones or the sadikims. And you know who these people were? These were people, folks who lived in the village, who had a covenant relationship with, with the border of this village, saying, I will protect the integrity of the walls of this village with my life. This is my promise to the people of this village. These walls and the integrity of these walls belong to me. I will bear that burden. Right? And when the village was being attacked or if they heard about an enemy that was coming, these Sadiqims, the righteous ones, would leave the village and they would fight the enemy. And then they would come back having uh, accomplished the purpose for which they were sent and they would be celebrated. They would be carried, raised up on men's shoulders, being heralded as the righteous ones. Not because they were so great by themselves. It's not because they were large in stature and that was it. They were sort of just beautiful to look at. Or because they were, you know, able men who were able to fight and they possessed these skills and so they were admired for these skills. No, it had nothing to do with that directly. It had everything to do with the fact they actually employed their strength and their skills in the fulfilling of these particular claims that arose from that relationship, from that dynamic. It's about keeping the covenant. If you are able to keep the covenant, the promise, then you are considered righteous. And righteousness was bestowed on those who are able to keep the promise. And so when the scripture here says the righteousness of God is being manifested and it's verified by the Old Testament, we are talking about God himself acting in such a way to preserve his covenant promises to us. Here God has made a promise with his people. And then not only Abraham, but every son after Abraham breaks the terms of the covenant. They are unfaithful to God. They disobey him passively, actively, consciously, unconsciously. And what is God to do? Walk away from the relationship? Then he would not be the Sadiqim. He would not be the righteous one. What is God to do? How can he be the just and the justifier? What, is, what, what, what can God resort to so that he himself remains just, a keeper of his word, an upholder of truth, and save our butts at the same time? And then we have verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. And then verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now there's a little um, 
conundrum that uh, translators and scholars have with verse 22 because uh, it's rendered, I think, in most Bible English translations as faith in Jesus Christ. But this is one of the few instances where it doesn't actually say that. What it says is faith of Jesus. And this always troubles scholars because they think, Jesus, does Jesus have faith now? Doesn't, isn't he with God? Isn't he God? does it mean for Jesus? And so the correct translation isn't faith uh, of Jesus Christ, but it's not faith in Jesus Christ. And so then they go back to the word faith. The word there is pistis, is the word in the Greek. And it can be translated as faith or faithfulness. And so pick up any commentary off my shelf and every single one of them will tell you probably the correct translation for this verse is not faith in Jesus, but the faithfulness of Jesus. Now let's read that. Even the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all those who believe For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now this is such a key uh, phrase to study. Because for me in my life, in my Christian life, or even just life in general, I always feel that I'm the bottleneck. That if something is going wrong in my life, somehow I'm at the center of it. I've made the mistake. I don't trust enough. I messed up again. I'm too weak. I'm too selfish. I'm not thoughtful enough. I have competing desires and frustrations and feelings. Somehow it's me. And so what happens is Christianity comes and says, Peter, Christianity is here to help you take the focus off of yourself. And all you have to do is to believe. And then all of the focus, my focus, turns to my believing. I got to believe. I got to believe. I got to believe. Because believing unlocks the key to everything. This is like the winning lottery ticket. I got to guess the numbers. What are the numbers? Give me the numbers. What's the code? How do I crack this thing? Does that happen to you? And so Christianity comes and says, Peter, take your eyes off yourself, focus on Jesus, and all I can do is focus on me even more. And it becomes the sun, which is a rather small star that blinds me from being able to see all the other more brilliant stars that are out there. Because this this local sun the center of our little solar system becomes the thing that's closest to me. And so I just stare at that thing and then I can't see anything else. The Bible's emphasis on faith is primarily an emphasis on the faithfulness of Jesus. Not on my faith. The Bible's emphasis on faith is primarily an emphasis on the faithfulness of Jesus and then secondarily on the pathway of our trust in him, which is also his work entirely. You are saved by grace through faith, which is also a gift. But I still want to know, what then is my part? Just, just tell me. Fine. It's all about Jesus, his faithfulness, and then the pathway that he creates for me to walk on. And even that is his work. Fine. What do I do? Just tell me what my part is. What's my role in this whole thing? Our righteousness. Verse 21 again. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The phrase there that it begins with is apart from the law. 
That's Paul's attempt at trying to take me out of the picture. In the 1500s, there convened a council called the Council of Trent. And they concluded, uh, as part of that meeting, that all of our sins are forgiven. True. Through Jesus, all of our sins are forgiven. And then we were given new moral natures. That our natures are being made new. In fact, it is new. And then uh, they sat around really nervous, twiddling their thumbs because they feared what's called antinomianism. It's the fear of lawlessness. Well, if we get rid of the law because all our sins are forgiven and then we have a new nature and then now we're just entrusted to our new nature, that means that we don't need the law anymore because our new nature is the law. It's the spirit of the law. What our nature would want to do is what's right and true. So you already love your spouse. Your spouse doesn't need to give you rules. There's no like tulip Tuesdays. Because your heart is filled with flowers for her. Right? I actually have a friend who has tulip Tuesdays. (laughs) And he needs it. But what if we are left to our own devices? Can you be trusted with your own devices? How, how trustworthy are your devices? On an island, by yourself, with nobody watching, nobody will know and can know, and magically no consequences. Who the heck are you then? And so... They conclude that righteousness is not sinlessness. Do you know this? That even if you never ever committed another sin, you did nothing wrong ever, you're still not righteous. Because by the works of the law, no flesh shall see God. And righteousness is relational. You can be perfectly perfect and still have no relationship. Righteousness is not a status that we earn or that we wear or that we bear. It has nothing to do with you as a person isolated by yourself. You can feel great about yourself. You can feel innocent. You ever have a moment like that when there's a, something goes wrong and the question that everybody's asking in the room is, who did this? And it is so clear it's not you. And there's this, you feel so emotionally free. You're not invested in this conversation at all. Except to underscore your own innocence. With a family of four little kids, that happens all day. We always want to know who we have to punish. Who's at fault here? Right? But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if each of my kids are perfect if they're not in relationship, in the right relationship with mom and with dad and with fellow siblings. It doesn't matter at all. Their own personal perfection doesn't count. Righteousness, and here's a big one, is not something that we own or possess. You have to think about this one because it's a whole new way of thinking and being. See, this is often what I, what I go through in my heart when I'm relating to God or trying. I haven't done anything wrong today. I didn't intentionally violate my conscience. I'm good. And life seems good. Paychecks coming in, check, No flat tires, check. House is in order, check. I've been helpful to Susie in the kitchen, check. I'm good, right? I worked hard today, experienced some productivity. I had a little bit of fun as well. The weather is nice. Man, I had a really great lunch. 
an old friend of mine got in touch with me. That made me feel good. And then what? And then I feel cut off. I feel sufficient. I don't need God. I don't feel a need for God. And this is, this is the crazy thing about righteousness. That righteousness isn't about me. It's, it's apart from the law. So it's not a status that I can possess. And what it is, is a dynamic connection to the person of Jesus. And if I don't have that, I'm not righteous. And I can't have that because it's not I who does the possessing. It's Jesus who possesses me. So apart from this live, alive, and active, dynamic connection to the person of Jesus, there's no such thing as righteousness for me. And so righteousness, on the one hand, is the act of God, the, the, the work that he does, the thing, the plan that he unrolls as a way to get into a relationship with us. To fulfill the terms of the covenant. That's God. And so what we say is that Jesus Christ is God's righteousness. Because Jesus in the person, right? In his person was the plan, was the execution, was the fulfillment of all that God had planned for us. And then from our perspective, we say Jesus Christ is our righteousness. Because he is the purpose and the plan that in him we are reconciled to God. It's not that Jesus Christ sheds his blood and therefore now God forgives us and gives us a status, stamp, forgiven, next. And now we're forgiven and we're just off and running on our own. And then if we mess up again, then we come back to God and God says, Oh yeah, right. I can forgive you now because of Jesus and that whole blood thing. Stamp, forgiven again. Expiration date. Off you go. No news is good news. It's not independent of God. Our righteousness is this connection to Jesus. As long as we're connected to the person of Jesus, because he alone is the righteous one, we have this standing with God. We have this connection with God. As soon as we deviate, we disconnect from the person of Jesus, we are no longer righteous, even if we don't sin, even if that were possible. Even if you're forgiven of everything bad you've ever done. Everything bad you've ever wanted to do, your mind is clear, you're this perfect person. You still cannot be right with God apart from the person of Jesus. God's plan wasn't to give you the capacity to be this perfect person by yourself. But his purpose and his plan was to join you to Christ so that your nature becomes like his nature and your life is hid with Christ. And for you to die is gain and to live is Christ. And it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you and through you and for whom you live. And so you take the whole Jesus out of Christianity and you have nothing because you can't have a status you can't possess anything there's no label you get to wear it's not like God puts this new clothing on you and that's it the, gar the Bible talks about new garment but the garment is his blood it's the person of Jesus it's the lifeblood of Jesus on you so you're never disconnected from the person of Jesus. 
I was recently asked to uh, pray at this thing, and it was like a multi-faith thing, ecumenical thing. And one rule I was given was I wasn't allowed to say Jesus. It's a graduation prayer, I guess. So I do it. I did it. Knowing what I meant, because I thought standing there and praying to not an unknown God, but to my God, true and living God, was better than to not do it at all. And I wanted to be invited back. But it's Jesus. He is the stumbling block. That name, Jesus. You, you walk around and you say that and people look at you funny. You can say God all day. But if you say Jesus, all of a sudden people start freaking out. He is our righteousness we can never ever be righteous nor were we ever righteous nor were we ever meant to be righteous apart from god's righteous god's righteousness that is jesus and he now has been publicly declared jesus is the person jesus is the plan and if i be lifted up i will draw all men all people unto myself And unless we are lifting up Jesus, we're lifting up nothing. The law, it shows us that we cannot be, we're never, or can ever be righteous apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's all the point of the law was. God gave the law as a tutor to Jesus. God gave the law so that our conscience can be better informed about the specifics of how we can never, ever persist in rightness with God apart from Jesus. And so Jesus Christ, Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, is God's righteousness. And Jesus Christ, Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, is our righteousness. Through Jesus alone, we are reconciled to God the Father. There is no other way, there is no other name under heaven by which we can and must be saved. This is the whole thing with Christianity. And if I'm going to be a Christian minister, I have to say Jesus. That's the the whole job. If I don't do that, I'm not doing my job. I should just go be a pastor somewhere else or run a nonprofit or do good social work. Why, Why am I a pastor of a Christian church? A job that requires me to stand behind the weight of this pulpit and preach from Scripture. Because all of Scripture is about Jesus. And I have to say Jesus. Verse 25 spells out that even those who came before Jesus can only be and were always meant to be and are only saved by Jesus. They were not saved on plan A and Jesus' plan B. Jesus isn't plan 1A and there's a plan 1B. He's it. Nobody has ever gone to the Father except through Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus died? He breathed his last and the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And then what weird thing happened? The saints of old started, they came back from the dead. They're they bodily resurrected and started walking on the, on the earth. That's weird stuff. But that's the saints of all being saved through Jesus and Jesus alone. Separated forever. Remember Abraham's bosom? When Lazarus died, where was he? He was in Abraham's bosom, separated by a chasm between him and the rich man, able to see each other. That's not Jesus. That's Abraham's bosom. That's the law. Verse 21 and 25 point out that this plan, this person, Jesus was manifested, he was witnessed, he was displayed, and is a demonstration. These are very visceral, tangible words. Righteousness is not an invisible status that we can imagine that we have. It's a mind game that we play as Christians. 
Oh, wait a minute, I forgot I'm righteous. Nope. But it's a person in the flesh, tangible. It's Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. I like saying Jesus of Nazareth because that means he was here on earth. Why do we have such a desire to know our part in it? What's my role? Because I want to own stuff. I want to possess something and then I want to go off and be my independent self. I want to be able to operate out of my own will, out of my own desire, according to my perspective. I have a thought on this matter. I realized as I was studying for this uh, sermon, I came upon this article about not OCD, which some have accused me of having, obsessive compulsive disorder, but they were on to something. I think I might be on the spectrum for what's called OPD, obsessive personality disorder. It's when you believe that your opinion, sincerely you believe this, is the most important one in the room. (laughs) And they name people like Steve Jobs or others who without that kind of attachment and commitment to their own vision, they, they never would be able to accomplish it because there's just too much pushback. You're breaking too much ground, right? And I, I, grow, I have grown up very well loved by my parents. If I start talking, they stop. They listen to me. And I'm so used to it. And I have three sisters, and we all sincerely believe our opinion matters. Not just matters, but matters over and against yours. But really, that, that has... I really think I'm important. And that's part of my battle with Christianity. Is I don't have to own stuff. I don't have to be independent. I don't have to actualize my vision for everything. What crazy man starts six churches in a row? This crazy man right here with OPD. If you don't have OPD, would you do it? I don't think so. And God says, Peter, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. A couple of stories and then two application points. One lesson I am learning these days is about the difference between owning versus being loved. Uh, One way that, one tangible way that I understand this is um, uh, my wife and I, over our 16 years of marriage, we have bought and sold nine times homes, I'm talking about. And uh, right now, uh, we live in the church parsonage, which the church owns. And it's part of the uh, salary package that the church has um, bestowed on us. And I really, really like not owning it. We had a meeting this morning at 8.30 with the leadership team and I, just about the parsonage. We met for 45 minutes. And... Their love for us and our desire to not be in angst about the parsonage, to not have tension, to not have future tension, and trying to design policy and process and even future planning in such a way that eliminates tension from me. That, that love and desire for wisdom was palpable in the room. Every single person, their main goal wasn't investment this and that. It was about Peter, are you guys okay? Are you guys happy there? Would you choose this house? Is it a distraction to you in any way? What work needs to be done? Would you speak to us freely about it? We feel like you're trying to be a nice guy, but you're not really shooting straight with us. Because we want to love on you guys, and we're not sure how to do that if you don't speak up. That was the tone of that meeting this morning. Do you know what it feels like to be loved even if you don't own it? You know what ownership is, I think, at its core? I know this because Scripture tells us we don't actually own anything. At our best, it's not about ownership, but it's about stewardship. That ownership is one fallen man's way of trying to love on ourselves. It's us trying to have as much control and say in the matter as possible because the world simply doesn't love 
us. We don't love each other enough. But I'm telling you, one day when the world is set right and perfect love reigns, we're not going to need to own anything. We're all going to be stewarding God's creation. He alone is going to own everything. And we're going to live to please him and not ourselves because he has died for us. And he loves us to the bottom. And we believe that and know that without a shadow of a doubt. And when we get to that place psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, physically in this world, we're going to be loved. And ownership is going to cease. But I'm telling you, I got a taste of it this morning. The church wanting to love on me like that. It's probably mostly for my wife. But I fall under that umbrella. When, um, and I think I've told this story before, the second story here. Uh, when my mom's mom died, uh, she, she died of complications from diabetes. And uh, when she died, I was in high school. Um, and I came home one night after hanging out with my friends or something. And it was late, 2, 3 in the morning. And I walked into my living room, and it was dark. My mom was sitting there in the dark at the kitchen table, and she was weeping into her hands. I sat next to her, uh, brought her a cup of water, and I asked her what's wrong. And um, she said, Peter, my mom died. I said, I know, that was like a month ago. How come you're crying now? And she she said, Peter, you you don't understand this. But she's the last parent I had left. And when your last parent dies, your world changes. Because nobody loves you the way a parent does. Now I'm the bottom line. Her whole world flipped because she's no longer loved in that way. And I'm sure something in her said, I need to own more stuff now. I need more control because that safety net is gone. I know that I want to own stuff, including my own status as being a good person. I want to to own that. I want to bear that. But God says, no, that'd be going backwards. That'd be the law again. Try to understand this that unless you have a live dynamic connection to the person of Jesus of Nazareth, you're nothing. You have nothing. And that's why we call that salvation. Two application points. One is it's easy, so easy to just preach wisdom and truths and exhortations and shoulds. Ask the staff. They are bullied by my chasing them down to talk about Jesus when they preach. The easy thing to do is to just say, do stuff. Think about this differently. Be a better person. Go do that. The harder thing is to preach Christ and him crucified every week. That's the harder thing to do. And so this application is for you all to hold the staff here, the preaching staff, accountable to this. If we don't preach Christ and we give you another piece of wisdom or another law to keep, you tell us, you remind us and say, that was great, Peter, but I felt like all I have to do now is to pray. And prayer is not it, is it? Isn't it Jesus, not prayer? And I have to say, yeah, it's about Jesus, not about prayer. It's not about about anything except Jesus. He fulfills every law in him, and my connection to him is everything. So remind me of that. We've planned out a year of sermons. Most of it is going to be me, so remind me most often. But every staff, don't let us get away with preaching anything other than Christ. If you want to hear about things other than Christ, because there is a lot of wisdom out there, Go somewhere else besides a Christian church. 
We don't do a good job at other things. This is what we do. This is our one job, is Jesus. Second application point. I want to challenge you out of the pursuit that you have experienced through Jesus, pursuing you. I want to challenge you to pursue somebody else this week. There is somebody you are not right with. It doesn't matter what you conclude after you do the math of whose fault it was and whose ball the court is in. God owns the court. He owns all the balls. He owns the racket. He owns the shorts you're wearing to play tennis in the first place. Go pursue somebody. List out your faults and build that bridge. Be the righteous one. You go be the sadiqim this week. Because I know there's somebody that you're feeling eh about. And that energy, emotional energy you're spending to manage that is way greater over time than the energy it would take to just go one shot, deal with it, and be in a good free place and be glad you did afterwards. I know there's more complexity than that, but that's all I have right now. Today as we uh, partake in communion, and I'm giving myself permission to go long today, by the way, because starting next week, my sermons can only be 30 minutes. So uh, this is my last longish sermon. (laughs) Um, As we take communion today, uh, I want to ask you to think about this, that you are symbolically... Eating his flesh, drinking his blood. This is what Jesus asked us to do, to eat his flesh and to drink his blood. And he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. That is, you have no part in the plan. The plan excludes you because the whole plan is me. And unless you're connected to me, you got nothing. And so today I want to invite all of you who are beginning to understand this, or maybe you've understand this, understood this for decades, but reaffirm again then that it is about the person of Jesus and your connection to him. And once that connection is broken, you got nothing. And so we do this on a regular basis as a way to remember that it's about Jesus. And we connect to him in this way. Amen? Amen. Hear now the words of institution. On the night in which our Lord Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, was betrayed, he sat down for a meal with his disciples. Then he took the cup. He took the bread first, excuse me. He took the bread and breaking it, he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat, and as you do, remember me. Then after the meal, he took the cup, and he said, Take and drink. This is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And as you drink, remember me and proclaim my death till I return. 